Hey, welcome to the 59th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Richard Sandemir, the New York Times obituary writer. Yes, obituary writer. And if you don't read the obits in the Times, you're missing something really special. It's a riveting walk through a museum of the world, with displays ranging from former ballplayers to queens to the daughters of Nazis. I really want to talk to Richard about the art of the obit, how to write it, how to decide who to feature. Is it sad? Is it fun? So let's talk death writing, right now, on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. All right, Richard, thank you so much for uh, for doing this. This is the most technical difficulty I've had thus far, and I'm happy to report it was your fault. Absolutely. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> As long as it wasn't my fault, I didn't care. No, what, no, no. It's, 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 it's definitely my fault. Wait, so um, I am fascinated by obituary. I wrote my first and only obituary when I was at the National Tennessean. It was for uh, Loretta Lynn's husband. It's the only obituary mm-hmm. I ever wrote. I wrote away ahead of time. And your obituaries are fantastic. I feel like I'm getting a history lesson. And I want to talk about one in particular just because it really caught my fancy and we can dive more into it, but you wrote an obituary in uh, a couple of days ago for uh, Himmler's daughter, Gudrun yeah. Himmler, whose father, obviously Heinrich Himmler, you know, the infamous Nazi. And you, your lead was, it was a quote, do you know how many people your father cremated at Dachau? A British officer asked a young Gudrun Himmler during a post-war interrogation in 1945, or how many he gassed at Orenenburg? Of course you do. You're her Himmler's daughter, after all. She sat silently, according to an account in the 2000 book, My Father's Keeper, um, giving no indication of whether she believed that her father, Heinrich Himmler, the architect of the final solution to exterminate the Jews of Europe, was capable of the genocidal horrors of which he was being accused in 1945. First of all, it's great. But more importantly, I am fascinated by how this, like, I have no idea. Soup to nuts. How did you even find out about her death? How do you go uh, go about writing an obituary like that? Well, uh, we have very resourceful editors. Uh, th- this is the first section of any newspaper I've ever worked for where all the assignments are given to you. You may volunteer for one, but for the most part, the editors meet in the mornings and they go over all sorts of sources of obits, whether it's ones that come over the transom through email from a family or PR people, or we look at other newspapers. We, uh, we look at what people, uh, around the building are suggesting to us. And we see what's coming over from overseas. And, uh, th- I think there, there were a couple of, uh, uh, you know, obituaries of Gertrude, uh, Ber- Gertrude Berwitz, her, her maiden name, her married name. Um, but you know, it's, uh, it's a fascinating story. So, uh, my editor said, you know, She's yours. Well, thanks a lot. Himmler's daughter. <laughs> uh, but you know, much like an actor likes to do, uh, evil villains, uh, you know, writers like to do nefarious people. I write about them. It's, uh, there, there is something, uh, fascinating about people like that. And so you go about it by uh, plumbing the internet. That's 
how a lot of information is done for obits. Uh, we have our own library. We have, uh, we have clip files, but there's not much about her in, uh, available. So, uh, so I go through the internet. I find articles in Germany, some in English, some that I use Google Translate for. Try to find, uh, someone, an expert. I found one woman who's an expert on the children of, of, uh, Nazi officials. And I found some stuff in the wonderful archive of newspapers.com, uh, that anecdote about the, uh, the dance that she went to and nobody wanted to talk to her and she was all pissed off because, you know, I'm, I'm Gudrun Himmler. Uh, if we'd won the war, they'd be asking me out. And I found this article in newspapers.com, uh, uh, which has all these wonderful articles digitized from decades and decades and a hundred years ago. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You got, you, you, you figure out what it is. And the opening anecdote came from this, uh, this book, My Father's Keeper by Norbert and Stephen, uh, Stephen Liebert. Norbert is the father of the two, and Norbert had interviewed several Nazi officials' children in 1958 to 59, and he and his son put the book together uh, together some years later. And again, you kind of lay out all the information you have. I download a whole lot of stuff, and I take a yellow marker to anecdotes and quotes, and then I try to assemble the puzzle. The quote you're talking about is really good. It's a, it's actually the last part of the obituary, the final two paragraphs. Uh, by all accounts, Miss Burwood's pride in being Himmler's daughter never wavered, not even when she was shunned. That was evident when she attended a dance at a carnival. Not a single young man asked her to dance. If Hitler had won the war, they'd all be clamoring for me, she told a reporter for the WNS wire service in 1958. And I, I am Gudrun Himmler. I am Himmler's daughter. But now my father's men pretend not to know me. That's a great... Yeah. Why did you end with that? It's a great quote. And... uh, uh I, we like to, I think everybody, every reporter would like to end on a, uh, uh, a note that people will remember. We, we were all taught the inverted pyramid where the, uh, important stuff goes up top and you narrow and narrow it down. So you got the less, less important stuff, but obituaries really demand a terrific narrative. And here's a woman who didn't generate a lot of quotes. She, she herself was not a very public person, even though she belonged to a group that tried to keep itself secretive, uh, to, uh secret that helped aid Nazis who were wanted to flee or Nazis needed money or a retirement home. And, uh, there were books written about this and articles written about her participation in this group. She didn't give interviews about it. She just said, I can't talk about my work. So, you know, her, the jobs that she had, official jobs she had were not terribly interesting except for the fact that she did work under an assumed name in the early 60s for the West German Federal Intelligence Agency. Right. You were obviously known, and, and I've been reading you for years and years, you were known as uh, the sports media guy at the New York Times. And um, mm -hmm. I think you did it for 25 years. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so why the, uh, why the shift to obituaries? It's, it's a fascinating, it's almost like taking a middle reliever and making him a shortstop, or maybe it's like taking a middle reliever and making him a kicker. I don't even know why the shift. Well, twenty-five years of doing pretty much the same thing is a long time to do it. I admire people who who can maintain their uh, their energy and their fascination after all those years. But I noticed my energy and fascination was flagging, and uh, what I what I did and focused on was. You know, evolves and, uh, the sports department was not demanding what I wanted to provide. Again, it's, it's up to them to say yes or no. 
and uh, there wasn't a demand for for me to sit in front of a TV and and critique sports. And frankly, that that really bored me. After a while, everything seemed the same, and I couldn't really find the great uh, uh, feeling to criticize uh, announcers. So uh, I was getting somewhat bored with that. The demand wasn't there for it, and when this obituary job opened opened up in 2016, I, I I really needed a move out of my comfort zone. It seems really cool. I mean, I'm looking at your this is literally in chronological order. Uh, your obituaries that you've done: uh, springtime mm-hmm. for Hitler choreographer, inventive cinematographer, ever loyal do- right. daughter of Himmler, Ed Schultz mm-hmm. from MSNBC, um, right. choreographer of Cats. Uh, right. prolific irascible science fiction writer, architect of space mm-hmm. habitat, disc jockey, right. champion weightlifter. Mm-hmm. It seems like the diversity of subject would be the greatest joy of it all. It, it really, it really is true that I never know because again, unless I raise my hand and see somebody had died that, you know, that the editors don't, don't know about yet or, uh, they're deciding who's going to do it. They give me all the assignments, so they, they, they do try to diversify them for everybody while also uh, looking to the wheelhouse. Uh, Sam Roberts is uh, one of my colleagues. He does, you know, he was a Metro reporter and a real expert on New York City and New York State politics. So you'll likely find him doing that, but he'll, he'll do a lot of other things. I've done my share of sports and media people because they know I know that, and they kind of consult me on saying, well, is this coach or announcer worth our time. And, uh, you know, I'll weigh in and say yes or no. But I love the diversity. And sometimes you find real diversity in a single person. There was, there was a physicist, uh, out of Chicago named Len Rifle. And he did two things, each of which would merit an, a, a, a single obit. The first thing was in the late fifties, he chaired a, uh, study group for NASA to figure out what would happen to the moon if NASA and the American government blew up a nuclear bomb there. It was right after Sputnik, and they were kind of looking to show the Russians uh, what we could do. I don't think anybody was serious about it, but he chaired that. Okay, that's pretty good, and there's, there's documentation on it, and you drill hard enough on the Internet, you find so much stuff. And then about 15 years ago, 15 years later, he, he invented the Telestrator. For educational TV, he had applied wow. his physics knowledge to to uh, commercial ventures, and uh, you know this is a guy who had a kind of he was kind of a polymath. He understood how to do almost anything, and uh, it was applied entirely to educational TV. I don't think I saw anything that he said related to whether to how John Madden uh, used his uh, invention. But there it is, diversity within a person, and uh, you know. But even this choreographer Alan Johnson, you. You know, he did conventional choreography for TV shows and Broadway, and then uh, very early in his choreographic career, he he gets to know uh, Mel Brooks, and Mel Brooks wants to lampoon the Nazis in uh, in the producers, and there's your man. Does it make you sad? Like you're writing about just an example, Billy Connors, Yankee pitching coach, mm-hmm. who died at you know 76 in June. Uh, that's a guy. I mean, probably you've certainly known about over the years if you uncover sure. him at all. And do you? And also guys whose who's sort of ages are closer to you, you know, you, as you get older and blah, blah, blah. Like, is there emotion, sadness involved when writing about someone's death? Uh, no, because for the most part, although an obituary is only done when somebody dies, uh, it's one, maybe 1% about their death. 
and 99% about what they did. So I have levels of rabid fascination, uh, but uh, I guess the, the, the saddest one that I did where I could feel a little bit of my eyes welling up, there was a um, Vietnamese-born lawyer who was born blind with cataracts in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Her grandmother ordained that she be taken to an herbalist and killed because she'd have no life. That order was refused. And she, at about three years old, she and her family came along on a boat lift from Vietnam and uh, landed in Hong Kong for a while. And uh, then through the American Red Cross, they moved to San Francisco and then Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, she had eye surgery to correct her problems so that she was able to get around. She was legally blind, but she could do her work uh, sometimes with magnifying glasses. And she dies in her early 40s. And she, what brought her to our attention was a blog that she did, which was just a brilliant, brilliant writing. And essentially, it's a letter, a continuing letter to her little daughters that they would be able to understand when they got older. And it really was, I'm I'm getting the chills talking about it. And that that was profoundly sad. A, A very good lawyer who had this depth of feeling and very funny and, uh, but extremely open. And, uh, I could tell, you know, her husband was having trouble talking about her. Uh, I think that was the saddest I got, but amazed also at what she did, uh, you know, through a life where she was almost, I guess, even, what do you call it, ritualistically killed because her life would amount to nothing. Right. You know, I mean, that's, uh, but the, the line I gave you about, it's 1% about li- uh, death and 99% about life was from my now former colleague, Margot Fox, who said it in the movie about our department called Obit a couple of years ago. And uh, if you think about it as writing about death, then it's hard to get through. But if you want to write about, you know, people who write about car accidents and, and murders and uh, massacres, that's writing about death. This is, this is writing about somebody who has died. But uh, we, we focus no more than two lines on their death. I just want to say I... Um... I went to her, her name was Julie Yip Williams. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a, uh, she wrote on a, in her, in her blog, on her blog, October 16th, 2017. She wrote this blog post called Complete. And it starts with cancer is completing my life, making it whole. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Most would say that cancer, the terminal kind, is truncating and destroying their lives. For a long time, especially in the beginning of this cancer journey, I felt that way too, but no longer. It all makes sense now. It's a, yes, man. I mean, just by yeah. us talking and by you writing that obituary, it seems like you're doing her honor in sending people to read her blog. And I, I do feel that way. And in fact, you know, that was one, my editors were talking about that before they assigned it. And it dawned on me that I'd seen her, I think this two weeks before on the CBS Sunday, on CBS Sunday morning. And I thought, oh my goodness. And I didn't, and, and she looked fairly healthy, but it had been, it had been taped about a month or six weeks earlier. So when I, when they, I didn't remember her name, but I, but as my editors were describing her circumstances, I said, no, I, I want that one. Uh, cause I, I, I want to know more about her. And then I find out that she's signed to write a book, uh, uh, based on her blog and that it's, you know, it has to be completed by her editor. 
um, in some ways. And, you know, her agent happens to be my, one of my former editors from Sports Inc. magazine who edited, uh, Esquire for a long time, Dave Granger. So, uh, it made it easier to track down her editor by knowing it was Gra- Granger was, was, was her, her, was her agent. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a sad thing. That's a very sad story. Yeah. Knowing she's leaving behind, you know, two little girls who, uh, clearly adored her and, but only knew her basically as a sick woman. Who's to say who gets an obituary? I mean, if, yeah. if, um, if former Yankee infielder Wayne Tollison dies tomorrow, does he get an obituary in the New York Times? He might get considered, uh, but not for very long. There are various levels of consideration. There's the consideration that's already been granted through advance obits. So we have 2000 advance obits that are, you know, about the people you'd think we'd have advance obits on presidents, kings, queens. Uh, major rock stars. Does that have to do with age? Senators. Like, would there be a Barack Obama to some extent, already written? Yes. Oh, oh, sure. Sure. Because you never know with presidents. Uh, they're always in danger. And we did an article about how many times we wrote and rewrote the Fidel Castro of it because you never knew with him, especially with the United States gunning for him for, for a good number of years. So, uh, you have those people. And if we hear, and, and we don't have a big enough of a staff to do excuse me, do everybody you'd think that we should do. So when Robin Williams died, we didn't have an advance. When Prince and Michael Jackson died, they, these are all people 63 or younger. We didn't have those advances. Now, we have people with the skills to do them very quickly. But all in all, we'd, we'd like to have as big a staff and as wide a net to have 10,000 advance obits, but, but we don't. So those people... uh have been decided on quite a while ago. They keep, and more and more and more are getting decided on every day. And those are written both by our staff and by people around the building who have their expertise in, in those things. So, uh, you know, if, for example, we do have a Mick Jagger obit, I would imagine that it might be done by John Perales, our pop music critic. Right. Then, then there's the daily level of, of obits. Uh, and, I wouldn't say it's it's a it's certainly not a crapshoot. We 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 have standards. Uh, certainly, when Ed Schultz died, we knew immediately we should do that, but we didn't have an advance on him. We had no idea that he was ill. Uh, and the editors meet every morning, and you know the consideration goes on, you know, uh, you know, all the time in a way. But the morning meetings are are looking at uh, what we know of who died in the ne- in the last day or so. Uh, You're in the have- office every day. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, one of the things about the job is that, uh, you kind of travel the world through your obits, but you go nowhere physically, except maybe to, I, I went to the Strand bookstore today to, today to get a, a book about my next obit subject. Uh, and that, the, the Strand or the library are, are our, you know, are, are our road trips. In the middle somewhere, there's the, my story about Dick Enberg. I had told my editor, Bill McDonald, a few months ago that, you know, Dick's turning 82 or 83. We should do an advance on him. And he said, when you have time, do it. Well, at 4.15 on the day that he died, having not done the advance of it, my, one of my cats wakes me up around 4 o'clock in the morning to be fed. So she really, he really woke me up to that, uh, that day. So I looked at my, uh, my iPhone, and I got uh, an email from my friend Ken Belson, who's traveling, I think, in Amsterdam. And he sends me a link to a Twitter message that says, Dick Enberg has died. Oh, boy. So... I wrote a note to my wife. I got dressed and I was in the office by 5.15. I had all my notes. I had all my materials and my file waiting to be used for Dick. And finally there it was. And it was written by 11. 
It didn't go up till around two o'clock because we absolutely positively have to reach somebody, a family member or somebody in authority to confirm the death and tell us the cause. And I, I reached, uh, you know, Dick, all, all of Dick's family was in Boston waiting for him to come over to see his new grandchild so that nobody was home in the, in the Enberg household. So I did track down, uh, his lawyer. But, right. um, how, and, you know, by, how long it, would it take it, you to write that? It took me about five hours to write that. You know, as well as, as, as I do that, you know, when you have to do something, you could do a lot faster than if you get a lot of time to do it. And it, and it turned out fine. Um, and, you know, because I had written so much about Dick, I don't think I needed to speak to anybody with, with, with any expertise to tell me why Dick mattered. I knew already. Have, have you had, um, family members or friends of people you have written obits for? angry about what you wrote or a portion of what you wrote or something you used in an obituary? Uh, no, no. I did get a letter today from somebody who was very upset that I wrote the uh, Himmler's daughter obit because he felt it, 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 it was homage to her. Oh my. Uh, but I wasn't going to respond with a definition of homage, nor was I going to debate this person over whether we should only be doing nice people. Uh, right. It turns out that most of the obits we do are about people who made a positive contribution, but sometimes, you know, Margot Fox did, did Charles Manson. So uh, we didn't pay homage to him simply by the act of having a long obit about him. He was, in his ne terribly nefarious way, uh, you know, worthy of an obit. Like, do people care if they get an obit? Like, do, do you think... Like it's never yeah, entered my do. head. Oh, what they, you think so? Yeah. Well, so, well, some do. I mean, some certainly with a healthy ego. One of the, there were two responses I got when I, I I took this job. One was, well, I guess we won't be talking ever again. This is from people in the business in the, in the mm. uh, sports media business, and I got one. I you know uh, from a major major uh, sports executive who said to me. Uh, a day later after the announcement was made, when are you coming over to interview me about for my advance obit? Oh my and uh, I said, you know, I understand why you're asking. You have a very healthy ego. And because we've jousted for many years about your claim that I never get, <laughs> never get anything right, uh, or that I'm, I'm always uh, critical of you, which wasn't true. Uh, yeah. you want your say. And he said, of course, why not? Come over. We'll have lunch. Um, People, most people do not have that reaction, that proactive reaction. Did yeah. you sit down with the person who wanted you to come over? Not yet. Not yet, but I will. I will. I mean, he, he's someone that I, w that I would have lunch with in the normal course of events anyway. So, um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I will talk to him, but, uh, he, his advance over has not actually been assigned yet. You wrote an obituary for Dan Ingram, a disc jockey. Yes. And, your second, uh, second paragraph was, his son Christopher said he died after choking on a piece of steak. He'd received yeah. a diagnosis of Parkinson, Parkinsonian syndrome in 2014. Um, was it important to include that he died on the piece of steak? I could see some people saying, like, why couldn't you just say he died of Parkinsonian syndrome? Uh, yes, I, I could have. Uh, but we like to have detail about the cause of death. I know a little bit about Parkinson's so that I know that one of the things that you lose, also people with um, uh, with dementia or Alzheimer's, 
you your your reflexes, uh, the instinctive reflexes start uh, fading, and it is it is possible that uh, uh, the, the swallow reflex was was not working as well as it would with Dan. But also, I didn't have to probe for that. Uh, his son Chris just uh, I said I said I read ha- I I I've read how he died because I wasn't the only person who reported that. Um, but uh, I need you to tell it to me. He said, "Oh yeah, he choked on a piece of steak." And no. I said, "Was was there anything you know, uh, any other things he was suffering from?" He said, "Yeah, Parkinson's, you know, Parkinson's." So, uh, right, you know, some years ago, before we started, you know, uh, demanding or requiring that we get somebody to confirm the cause of death, we uh, took some cousins word that somebody had died and the person actually hadn't yet. So from then on, and the person died shortly after that, but we were wrong for at least a day. And the idea is to get as much detail as we can about those things. You know, if, if a cause of death is really too grisly, we might, we might temper it. But, uh, I haven't heard any, any instance of people saying, uh, that's, that's too much. Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, and my daughter, Casey. So, Casey, pick a word, any word, and we'll make this ad about that subject. Really? Yep. Okay. Um, Slurpees? <laughs> Easy. Casey, do you like Slurpees? I do. No, they suck. But you know what doesn't suck? Tell her, Catherine. The music of Elton John? No, his music sucks, too. What doesn't suck is 503 Sports, the sponsor of this podcast. 503 Sports sells amazing throwback sports gear. USFL, XFL, World Football League, Minor League Baseball, and Hockey. All handcrafted and amazing prices. So don't suck like a Slurpee. Hey. And Elton John. That's not very nice. And visit 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to save 10% off your first purchase. You wrote a story I considered, I mean, really, a truly great piece. And, and I'd forgotten that you had written it. Uh, March 11th, 2014, a story of perseverance. Uh, it was about Stuart Scott, the now late yeah. ESPN Sports Center anchor. Mm-hmm. The lead was inside the mixed martial arts studio. Stuart Scott lifted the black t shirt that read, Every Day I Fight. Beneath it was a foot long scar that uh, bisected the ESPN anchor's washboard abs. It's a sign of life, he said, though it is the spot where cancer surgeons have opened up abdomen three times, removed parts of him. Scott's fight continues. And it's this really great profile. Of, uh, of Stuart Scott, who I didn't, I knew a little, but not very well, mm-hmm. and sort of his kind of, in a way, last stand against cancer. How hard is it to write about people going through really awful circumstances? Um, because he was so open and friendly, despite criticism I had made of him over previous years, because I really didn't quite grasp what it was he was doing with all his hip hop language and his, uh, for want of a better word, his shtick. He was so good. And we've been talking about doing this for a while through PR people. And when he said, come to the martial art, Miss Martial Arts Studio, I wasn't sure what I was going to get, but I got a full work, you know, his full workout with his, uh, with his instructor, uh, three hour interview, uh, follow up talks. I mean, you know, because you do magazine stuff and books. What a gift it is to get somebody who really wants to talk and, you know, show off the scars on his stomach and bring his girlfriend to verify certain things and talk about it. It, it was harder to write his obit, which I did, 
uh, it was harder to know about his decline because we didn't become friends after all the reporting for that story, but I certainly got a much better idea of what he was like and his adoration for his girls. And he told me some really interesting things about his daughters. And this is the most he'd ever talked to this point about having cancer. And, um, you know, you try to stay objective. And I, I, I don't know. I was there with a, 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 a ESPN PR person through, through that, uh, through the workout, not through the, not through the, uh, meal afterwards. And really it was just like, this is incredible. This is fascinating. Again, maybe it's, it's, it's like, you know, uh, doing stories about, you know, not very nice people, people going through great trauma and great, um, Challenges is, is, is fascinating work. And, uh, I, I, I wasn't upset doing it. I was, I was, you know, I was shocked, even though I knew that he didn't have that much long to go. I was kind of shocked when he died. And, um, and when I, when I left sports, I wrote sort of a valedictory farewell. And in it, I said one of my regrets was not appreciating Stuart Scott while he was still working. Right. And, uh, because I was, I was behind the eight ball on that. I was applying, you know, a sensibility from watching sports in the seventies and being riveted by wor wide world of sports, not by this very modern, very hip guy who knew his sports really well and was presenting it differently. Was he presenting it any differently? You know, and was, was he, was he off the, uh, the, uh, standard meter any more than Oberman was? No, uh, just different guys doing different things. Uh, veering from the standard of, uh, you know, somebody sitting in front of you and just reading the scores. So right. I, I really enjoy talking to, to Stuart and his sister and Sage Steele, one of his close friends. And I don't know. Uh, then of course you move on. And I, I didn't know at that point in 2014, I'd be writing obits two years later, but it's, um, I wouldn't say it was practice, but you know, uh, we think of the obits as as stories and great with with potentially great narrative arcs, and you want to think of every story like that. They don't always work out that way, but um, I'm you know I was I was I was you mentioned the word honor before. There is a certain level of honor in doing a great many of these obits, and uh, because most family members respond by phone or email, thank you very much, and I. I I don't say it's a pleasure, you know, I, I say it's an honor. And for the most part, it is. Right. I always say people, the, um, people allow you into their lives. And I think bad journalists take that for granted and feel that they're owed that hour, that two hours or whatever someone gives you. And I think good journalists remember that number one, nobody owes you a thing. Nobody has to talk to you. Exactly. Um, Exactly. And that they're doing you a favor and they're letting you in. And, and that's kind of the beauty of the whole job is that people let you in. I, I hate when people forget that or people feel like they're owed access. What, Nobody owes us access. You know, it's, it's easier to do what I do. You know, the New York Times is calling to talk about your loved one. You know, what was really, really hard when I worked for Newsday, I was covering the town of Hempstead in the mid eighties. And uh, for a while I was on, um, Sunday, uh, cop duty. And one of the, and, and, and this, this I learned, I had no idea. You know how a newspaper gets the, the, you know, junior high school graduation photo of a kid who just got gunned down in, say, Freeport, 
to mm-hmm. go to the house. Right. And that's what I did, you know, you know, numerous times in the year or so I was doing that. On Sunday, you'd go to the cop shack in, in Mineola, you'd find out what was going on. And, you know, kid got killed in Freeport, 12 year old, you track down the address, a lot harder those days without the internet. And you show up, you don't call, maybe you've called in advance, maybe you found the number, maybe you haven't. And you're standing there, and it is a heart-wrenching to do that. But they let you, invariably, they let me in. And these are, you know, innocent people who died. Uh, and, you know, it was fascinating. They didn't want to stop talking because, in a way, this is the only time a newspaper is ever going to be interested in the life of this kind of 15 or 18-year-old child there. And... I always felt some sort of, uh, I felt a little better afterwards knowing that they wanted to share this with me. And so it's, you know, it's three, four times a week. I, I get a version of that on the phone, albeit with usually somebody that has achieved something where that person or the family has, you know, has some sort of hope or expectation that uh, an obituary by the Times or some other paper will be done. Right. You have a book, The Pride of the Yankees, Lou Gehrig, Gary yeah. Cooper, and the Making of a Classic. It was published by Hatchet, came out last year. Mm-hmm. I would have never dared to write this book. Well, never. And I'll tell you why. Because I feel like, I don't think I could have done it well, number one. I think, number two, it's really hard to write books that are so in the past. I don't think I'm very good at it. And I think you pulled it off really, really, really well, um, which speaks to freaking doggedness and, and, and hard, you know, hardcore research. Um, it just struck me as daunting, like a really daunting subject, especially, you know, Jonathan Eig, who, who we both know wrote a great book about Gehrig. Um, Gary Cooper's been written about, uh, you know, extensively. Um, why did you do it? And I, you know, what did you sort of get from the experience? Uh, I did it because I, I've always loved the movie, but I was reading a biography of Samuel Goldwyn by A. Scott Berg. It was written in the 80s or 90s. And there was like a half page anecdote about how Goldwyn, who knew nothing about sports, absolutely nothing about baseball, uh, was kind of dragged into his screening room by his story editor, Niven Bush, who was a baseball fan. And this is like June of 1941, uh, shortly after Gehrig dies. And he says, I want you to watch the newsreels of Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day. Watch this speech. And I, you know, there's, there's no record of exactly what Goldman's reaction was while watching uh, the marching bands and the gift giving and the other speeches. But after watching Gehrig deliver his speech, which is the very end of the ceremony, the lights go up and he's crying. And he says, run it again. And he runs it again. He cries again. And, you know, the lights go up and he says, get your Mulvey. Mulvey was the number two guy who worked in New York. We're going to make a deal with Eleanor Gehrig. And I thought, man, this is, this is a really good story. And it, that started me on a quest of trying to find primary materials. Like, I, I couldn't do a book based on what I thought of the movie and critical reaction and stuff I read in the newspapers. That's, mm-hmm. that's really kind of the tangential stuff. And it took until I got a contract. This is probably 10 years. Uh, you know, Playing around with various ideas and, and proposals, getting rejected. Finally, I got a contract. Uh, I got it. I finally wrote a proposal. 
got a contract. Uh, that allowed me entree into the Samuel Goldwyn archives at the Motion Picture Museum in Beverly Hills. And God bless people from before our era because the amount of stuff they collected and didn't throw out, scripts, um, contracts, interviews between Paul Gallico, who wrote the first script and, and outline, and Eleanor, which kind of laid out her life, and, and in a way laid out a bit of a template of the movie. Um, and it just, I must have written 10 emails a day to my agent and, and my, uh, and my editor saying, holy shit, holy shit, look what I just found. Mm -hmm. And one day I was, I was going through, I, 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 these are all contained in these giant old accordion files. I found all these publicity shots and tucked in amongst the publicity shots are all these sketches that Gary Cooper did of people on set. Cooper went to college for commercial art and he was really, really good. And, uh, that was another holy shit moment. You know, I'm going to buy, I'm going to license these. So, uh, and I'd say two thirds of the book was in all these files because when I, I did get one script from a collector back in 2012 and that was all I had until I got a contract, but, it, but it really helped me do a proposal because it, it gave me a sense of what the screenwriters were wanted Gary Cooper to do what they wanted him to feel, whether he felt it or not is something else. But I wanted to get a sense for the stage directions or the screen directions that were being given. And I struck up a friendship with uh, Cooper's daughter, Maria, who was very good about telling me things about him and about her family, not about the movie because she was too young to know anything about it. But one day I was in, in Beverly Hills in my hotel room and I was Googling around, Googling around and I found a audio uh, record of uh, it was it was actually a, a 45 that had been put online of the friars roast of Gary Cooper in January of 61 when he was ill and he only had four months left to live and it was all of old Hollywood uh, Georgie Jessel was the MC Milton Berle Tony Tony uh, Tony Martin Dean Martin uh, Audrey Hepburn Greer Garson all paying tribute to paying tribute or or or, or, or were playfully tweaking Cooper. And at the end, he says something like, uh, you know, if anybody, th you know, I, you know, he, he, he echoes the luckiest man line at the end. Mm -hmm. So I said, Oh, I'm going to use this as an introduction or as an epilogue. And I called up Maria and I said, I, I told her about it. I said, do you know anything about this? And she said, sure. I was there. What do you want to know? Um, and you know, when you have to take somebody, ar something archival and try to make it live, you want to know what the weather was like. You want to know. You know, why her father's tie was crooked, things like that. And she, you know, did they take a limo or did they drive over to the, to the hotel? You know, so from there, I got a big data dump of Eleanor Gehrig's letters and papers from the Hall of Fame. And then I tracked down Eleanor Gehrig's lawyer's daughter who gave me her files. And then I used newspapers.com to fill in the blanks of, of, uh, certain things. If I wanted to know, uh, when Pride of the Yankees premiered in Hollywood in 1942, in August of 42, uh, who was there? What was going on? I knew some of that from the, 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 the Goldwood files, but I needed, I needed to understand more about, uh, the kind of premiere. It was, it was the last big flashy premiere in Hollywood until after the war because the government had ordained that no, no big lights, the marquees couldn't be lit up anymore. You couldn't have the big spotlights in the sky. They were worried about an enemy attack on the West Coast. So some of that was hinted in, was discussed in the files. The problem with some of the files is that some of it was, you know, publicity hooey. 
you didn't, sometimes you didn't know whether the stories were, were bullshit or not. So to corroborate them, I did that. Now, the curse, the blessing and the curse of this book was that there was nobody to interview. Uh, there's only, only one cast member I know is alive, a little kid who Gary promised two home runs for, but I couldn't track him down. Um, I know your books are heavily, heavily interviewed, hundreds of interviews. Yeah. Uh, my book would have taken another year or more to do that if, if people were alive. So it shortened my reporting, but I think it lessened what I knew. Uh, it was great to get Gary Cooper's Saturday evening post, uh, so, you know, as told to account of things, but it's filtered through a writer and, you know, you, you I would have loved to have sat down with him. But, right. you know, so it's, um, it, you know, the writing went relatively quickly once, once I started doing my vomit draft. Um, but, it was uh, it was just a joy to do it. It's just a matter of learning more about how to organize things. Um, Would it have mattered to... if um, if you found Gary Cooper to be a complete asshole? Like if in your research, you just this guy was such a dick and blah blah blah. Does that does that affect the book or uh, your enjoyment you know, of it? I I think it would have I think it would have it might have affected the enjoyment of of that part of the book. But I wasn't doing a biography of him, so. Uh, if I was doing a biography and he was a dick, yeah, that, that would have been a problem. But everybody was, you know, the people who I needed to speak to, I, I, I spoke to a, you know, a film artist to understand what a mat is because all the backgrounds of the stadium backgrounds were painted in. Uh, you know, the, the bottom of each shot, each long shot of the outfield was Wrigley Field in Los Angeles, but everything else was painted on top of it. Um, I needed to understand that, even to just write two lines about it. Um, so, uh, and, and I understood something that I learned from reading books by Doris Kearns Goodwin and David McCulloch. They're always thanking the archivists and the researchers. I never had anybody like that, to th like that to thank. But finally, I got to do that because when I made my request for everything that I wanted in the Goldman archives, I had thirty or forty different things and different permutations. And when I got there, they not, not only had gotten that, they'd gotten a lot more because they knew the archives. And they were so nice. And, you know, here's one file. Finish that up. Go to another file and put those white gloves on and, you know, don't, don't use a pen. It was just, you know, just a, a, a gleeful experience, truly. Right. So if we're, if we're doing your obituary, does it start with, uh, Richard Sandemir, author of Pride of the Yankees, you know, chronicler of one of the great movies of all time or to be, Richard Sandemir, who wrote um, the obituary for a man who choked on a piece of steak. Like, what do we? What do we? What do we? Well, it would probably <laughs> probably be the former. Uh, I think before this book, it, this book came out, it might have been Richard Sandemir, the author of Bold Like Me, his his autobiography of being of right. losing his hair. Uh, but you know, one of the things I did when I left sports, I I I wrote about why I was doing it, and I reminisced about how the very first assignment I got in my high school journalism class was to write an obituary about myself. Uh, and I reached out to my teacher, who I stay in touch with. I said, Bob, what, why did you sign that? He said, well, it's better than what did you do during your summer vacation. But yeah. it also got, it got you to think about what you've done and how little you've done and what you'd like to do in the future. So, hey, that's a good um, assignment. I've, I've been destined for this for, for 45 years. Yeah, that's actually, it's kind of funny. My, um, when I was in high school, my senior paper, my, my AP English final paper was 40 pages on the United States Football League. So I have been destined well, to write a USFL go. book. Yeah. If there they had assigned me an obit, I'd be doing your job right now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, listen, I, uh, 
I seriously, I appreciate your time. Usually, I'm glad we were able to work this out. And uh, oh, my, my I, pleasure. Well, I love your obituaries. Out well, thank yeah, you. your obituaries are great, thank and it's really. Uh, thank you. I think people. I actually, I I grew up reading obituaries. My dad was always a fan of obituaries. I just think there's something beautiful. There's just something beautiful in remembering people, and uh, it's a lot to me. You know, I'm sure you enjoy 25 years of of writing about sports and sports media, but to be able to do this, it feels as much public service as it does, you know, journalistic task. It it it, it really does, and I, I'm not denigrating anything I did in the past. Uh, I think I did it well, and uh, I, I think I was pretty close to the top of the game uh, doing that then. But you know, it's um, there's a, there there's some there's a lot of repetition, and the, the, really the only repetition in doing obits is. You know, whether you use this, the kind of standard formula for an obit or you try to subvert the formula by having uh, a great lead and you try to, you try to hide the architecture, uh, of a standard obit. And that's, that's more of a, more of what I want to do. It's, it's, it's kind of a crutch to have the standard formula. And, um, but you need a really good anecdote to, uh, to build it. Right. Hi, right, Richard. Thank you so much for doing this. I greatly appreciate it. Jeff, that's terrific. I want to thank today's guest, Richard Sandemir, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Richard on Twitter at Rich Sandemir and order his book, The Pride of the Yankees, wherever publications are sold. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. Also, a reminder, my book about the USFL, Football for a Buck, is available for pre-sale now. It's out officially in September. One can listen to True Rider Slinging Yang on iTunes and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.